Welcome to Galley Beggar Press podcast number 10. I hope you're doing well out there, in there, wherever you are. At the end of January, my co-director and wife, Eloise Miller and I, went to Paris. Lucy Elman was giving a talk in Shakespeare and Company about Duck's Newburyport. Even saying that makes me tingle. I'm a sucker for Paris, for Shakespeare and Company, and for the dreams they represent. To have a Gallybaker Press author speak in the same place as Allen Ginsberg, Annie Erno, Don DeLillo, Lawrence Durrell, Sarah Baum, and then for that place to be Shakespeare and Company on the left bank of Paris. I can't be cynical about these things. I can't even be realistic. I know the truth about the hardships people endure in Paris's suburbs, for instance, the problems it shares with most big cities, how those are compounded by obscene inequalities, public anger, violent police. But when you're there and it's all around you and it's so beautiful and, let's be honest, if you're lucky, so much fun, you can have a good time in Paris. You can live. You can get the best cheese, the best wine. Ellen and me, we had a blast. It was wonderful. Strictly speaking, we were working. There were writers we needed to meet. Writers, in fact, whose manuscripts we were desperate to see. There were editors we hoped might look at our next couple of releases, more due and insignificance, of which we're so proud and have such high hopes. We had to earn our crust, but it was extra delicious and fresh from the boulangerie. We met all kinds of people we admire and love. I spoke dreadful French. They spoke wonderful English. We hugged. We shook hands. We did those confusing little French kisses on the cheeks. We didn't know, although perhaps we should have by then, that death was moving among us. I think of that trip a lot now. Even at the time, it felt like the end of something. It was just a few days before the nightmarish, racist project of Brexit was set in stone and the UK took the stupid, selfish step of withdrawing from the EU. And next, of course, we all know what happened. Within two months, Paris, which was once so close to the UK, has been snatched out of reach by this awful disease. In the physical world, anyway. In my mind, it's still there. There are still cafes on the pavements. There are still the cheese shops, the wine, the food, the beauty, the buildings, the people. Okay, I'm in danger of getting mopey, so let's stop that. And for now, while we may not be able to go to Paris, a bit of Paris can come to us, even if it's a slightly different place to the one I like to remember. I now have a remarkable dispatch to share from a writer who is currently out there in the City of Lights, Jerry Fahili. Jerry is an author and journalist who's been based in Paris since the 1990s. He's the author of a fierce novel called Fever, published back in 2007. A few years ago, he wrote a wonderful short story called Gunk, which I'll be sending out with the next Gallybaker Press newsletter. So please look out for that. But here, now, as France looks forward to the easing of confinement measures, Jerry recounts the unsettling first days when the French capital went into lockdown. In the first days of the confinement of Paris, there was paper everywhere. Torn documents, flyers, scraps of catalogue and magazines scuttled along the footpaths in the mid-March winds. 
Then there were crows, oily black, with that bouncing, confident lope to them. I saw them on rooftops. They were perched on bins. They hopped on to car bonnets, stood at the doors of cafes, delighted with themselves. Black triumph. They're usually rare in Paris, but overnight they had invested the city, running the pigeons and sparrows off their patches. They'd become kings of the avian world, bounding all heavy-winged along the footpaths with scraps of paper in their beaks. In the hours leading to the lockdown, some 600,000 Parisians abandoned the capital. That's about a quarter of the population. They left for parental farmhouses, for coastal villas, to mountain refuges, to sit out the plague. Meanwhile, back in Paris, it felt as if the government had collapsed. Zero traffic, army patrols, homeless men at the junctions, then all this paper rolling along in the wind, in quivering heaps. I felt it was as though a dictator had fled, and in his hurry had emptied the incriminating documents, half-shredded, into the streets. The motorways out of the city were clogged right up to that cut-off hour of midday, Tuesday, March 17th, the St. Patrick's Day, a particularly ill omen. And then everything went quiet. In unmarked squad cars, the police rolled up and down the river in the main boulevards. No trains ran. No planes lifted off from Orly and Charles de Gaulle airports. It seemed like the crows, scuffling along the peaked lead roofs, were watching over this. Plague wardens. Paris had fallen. And as for us, left behind, who could no longer move beyond a radius of one kilometre around our homes, there was the hunkering down to be done, the purchase of masks, the printing out of documents authorising us to leave our homes for food, called affidavits of movement by special dispensation. In the evening at eight, we applauded from our windows the doctors and nurses of the French health system with those few neighbours that had stayed behind in our quarter. Then on TV, we took in the information of debt tolls galloping in Italy and Spain, and it felt like it was all getting very close, and that perhaps we were just applauding ourselves. Panic is like an external force. If you catch it in someone's eye, if you hear it, then it gets you too. It comes creeping upwards, water in the cabin of a sinking ship. A man coughs in the supermarket aisle. A woman sneezes. Someone is standing far too close to you in the queue. An ambulance race is passed. The triggers are everywhere. And the question becomes, do I run? Panic comes in waves. It isn't quite the same thing as fear. You can walk fear off. And if anything, it was good to walk. Even if there was a queasiness in the air. The sense that things could unravel faster than can be grasped. I would circle the streets of the Marais, from the district of St. Paul near the river, and north to the quarter of Temple, Temple, or rather, I describe rectangles. The Marais is a grid, a somewhat rickety one, of medieval-era lanes and alleys, lined now with dishevelled, sometimes unsteady-looking 18th-century townhouses, four stories high. Many of the streets are no more than seven or eight paces wide, some not much more than the breadth of a van. I walked through these canyons of sandstone, day in, day out, sticking to the middle of the road, the road car free. It became almost a matter of principle for me to avoid walking into a police check. 
My papers were in order. I had my affidavit completed, signed and dated. But a police check is called a control in French, and I didn't want to be controlled. At the first glimpse of a uniform, I would slip into the nearest side lane, heart-thumping. This was in the days after the vernal equinox. Surely spring was coming. Easter was imminent, and the sun did come out. No cars, no delivery vans, no lorries, just the occasional grunting, sweating jogger to disturb us in the pale, silver, Parisian light. Into the silence, the bells of the city's churches rang. When there are no more distractions, passers-by, cars, then buildings as if by magic become vivid, as fresh as their architects intended. The creaky villas of the Marais seemed extraordinarily present, like they were breathing. There's an adamant song that went, Young Parisians are so French, and that's how the buildings of Paris came out, in truisms, calmly proportioned, off-grade townhouses, black wrought iron balconies, slatted white shutters that in summer you draw in, leaving the windows open, giving shade, the breeze blowing through the slats. So French. And in the stillness of the afternoon, there appeared these spectral figures, men from Eastern Europe, Asia, eaten out of tin cans, squatting by the semi-ruin of Notre Dame that itself tired over the quiet green river. One day, I met a man lugging a dustbin along the road who said, If Jesus is the Son of God, who are you the Son of? A mocking, probing question, quite worthy of Jesus himself, I thought. In front of the town hall stood another in a motorcycle helmet, holding a saucepan, talking with the greatest dignity about electromagnetic waves. A Russian, with a face like the last Tsar, sat at the entrance of a tent by the post office. Would you kindly lend me some money, he said. There were all these souls you meet in the underworld. One morning I was on the route to Rivoli, no cars. On the corner of BHV, the department store, traffic lights slipped uselessly from amber to red, then green. You could hear their mechanisms click. From where I stood, looking east, a relay of forlorn lights clicked red to green, while their counterparts in the streets perpendicular to them clicked politely the other way. Rivoli is a long and broad avenue. It's the Oxford Street of Paris, and like Oxford Street, it's rather elegant, rather grand, but its commercial vocation of mainly middle-range, ready-to-wear clothes stores distracts from this. But not now. It had become itself, its 19th-century gravitas restored. I walked down the middle of it, enjoying temporary ownership. To the east stood the July Column, 50 metres tall, and perched on the top a statue, the Spirit of Liberty, nicknamed the Angel, in shining bronze, godlike, holding in one hand the broken chains of tyranny, in the other the flame of freedom. The July Column stands on the site of what was once the world's most notorious jail, the Bastille, whose fall we celebrate every year on July 14th, but it doesn't quite commemorate the events of 1798. It was erected in memory of another revolution, the one of 1830. There have been quite a few of them, an entire relay, like traffic lights, 1848, then the Commune of 1870, and then two world wars, 
not forgetting May 1968. Week in, week out, we watch the TV, waiting for news from the President as to when this will end and how. It's been an altogether strange few years here. The terror attacks, the massacre at the Bataclan, the yellow vest rioting on the Champs-Élysées, the general strikes only a few weeks ago, when firemen battled with policemen, when doctors and nurses, lawyers and judges left their gowns heaped in the streets. Institutions paralysed and at war, and now this. History is galloping on, and the trees on the route of Rivoli were all of a sudden devastatingly in leaf, and I hadn't really noticed that. That was Jerry Fahili. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Couldn't have made it without the help and support of the Writers' Centre here in Norwich. A big thank you to Chris Gribble and Peggy Hughes. Looking back on the work we've been able to do, thanks to the Writers' Centre, I'm surprised and pleased to say that we now have the beginning of an archive of podcasts you might want to explore. There's a wonderful reading from Adam Biles. It's the classic classic, The Deep. There's going to be another podcast from Adam next week, so watch out for that. It's pretty teenager talking about the writers she's been holding close during lockdown. There's Alex Phoebe reading the first chapter of Mordew. Go back further, and there's a wonderful meditation on creativity and finding Zen from Toby Litt. And there's an essential talk about feminism from Lucy Elman. And holding his own among all these wonderful Gallybegger writers, there's Pliny the Younger and his descriptions of the eruption of Vesuvius. Pliny wasn't available for that podcast, so you've got me reading. But luckily, the writing speaks for itself. Thanks for listening.